Um, as we open up the word, let's go to Matthew 24. We're going through the whole book of Matthew, not today, uh, but over two years. And the whole series, I've been dreading these next two chapters. Uh, if you know them, you'll know why. Uh, they're very complicated, difficult chapters. Uh, they have lots of contested and debated ideas. Uh, there's no one comprehensive, easy way other than my way of describing them. Uh, so you've come today for the final answer, which is encouraging. Today, uh, we're going to actually go over these two chapters in four weeks. Uh, and so today is verses 1 through 35. And if you'd like a title, I've stolen it from the Australian government during the early 2000s, be alert but not alarmed. Be alert but not alarmed. Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 35, ESV translation, if you're playing along. Um, if you'd like a Bible, put your hand up, and David, who's at the back, is our chief steward. He'll get you a Bible so you can read along. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn 
And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also... When you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if it's uh, something you commonly say, I do, uh, when people are overreacting, especially my kids, I might say something like, come on, it's not the end of the world. (laughs) You know, suck it up, basically, move on. Um, it's something we say when people are overreacting, over-responding, and they, they're wo- wailing and weeping. Like, Come on, it's not the end of the world. But how will we know when it actually is? You know, what, what if it is actually the end of the world? And, and that's the beginning, right there and then, when they stub their toe. That's, the, that's bringing it on. How do we know when it will be the end of the world? It's a question that promotes much speculation in the church and outside the church. You might have remembered in 2012, the Mayan calendar was predicting the end of the world. Uh, The year 2000 was when the world was going to end. Everything was going to blow up because of the Y2K bug and the systems would all destroy. Um, Recently, climate alarmists, you could say, activists, have been saying that if we don't act now, there'll be no world in 30 years' time. Um, It'll be so destroyed, there'll be no people left. Uh, And people fall on either end of the spectrum, this speculation which leads to alarmism or kind of just complete denial. And that's where you get the other side, the climate deniers. Ah, she'll be right, mate, just burn it all and we'll be right, we'll be fine. Uh, And and we get this kind of lopsided alarmism or apathy, alarm or apathy, and we flow and you might find yourself on either end of the spectrum. Uh, It's a problem in the church too. It's a problem because of passages like this and the ensuing verses in the rest of 24, 25, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel, uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. There's lots of parts of the Bible which talk about the end of the world and when Christ will come back, and they're very confusing. Uh, I remember the first time I really experienced it um, was when I was actually out in an indigenous mission in like 2006 in Gilgandra. And so a long way, 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 ways out west. And I'd been there the year before in Brewarana, and we'd preached the gospel. It was a great time. Then the, se- the next year I went out to this mission with our church, they'd invited this other group to come along. I won't name which tribe they came from, but they were not Aboriginal tribe, uh, Christian tribe, church. Uh, they were a mission organization. But instead of coming to bring the gospel... They were in a room very much like this, and and when they got up to preach, they got out charts. And they had a chart that went from here to the end of the wall and had all these dates and times and prophecies. And then, instead of getting people to, you know, believe in on Christ, they were handing out newspaper articles saying, look at this headline. We are working our way to the end of the world. They gave out a EU coin, which has like a lady on a horse. And like, look, it's from Revelation. The rider on the horse is coming. It's the harlot. It's the beast. The end of the world is here. We need to start preparing. We've got to get ourselves ready. It was good-hearted, right? They wanted people to be prepared for the second coming of Christ, which Jesus said would happen. But their focus was seemed like an over-interest, alarmism, a, a, a super focus on when will it be, what will be the signs, when's it coming. But then you fall on the other side of the spectrum. This is the spectrum I fall on, perhaps you do as well. Overly disinterested with the end of the world and the second coming of Christ. can kind of be like climate deniers, thinking, ah, who cares? It'll happen when it happens, if it happens. Um, You know, just going to live my life, 
actually, I'm kind of enjoying my life right now. You know, I've got the 10-year plan. I've got these things I'm trying to do. I'm going to, you know, for some of us, I'm going to get married soon or I'm planning to have kids or I've got this thing I want to purchase or this course I want to do. Actually, I really want to go and visit that country. Jesus, if you could just delay (laughs) coming back because I'm really interested in Europe and I'd like to go and check it out. Uh, You've got these, you know, overly disinterested. So we have reactionary alarmist. We have, you know, reactionary apathyism, um, and there's something about humanity that I think we want to know, because it is this mystery we don't know. Uh, we want to know when it will happen, because we want to avoid the pain. We want to make sure we're not caught out, and because it touches on one of our strongest motivations, which is fear. Best way to motivate people, you saw it in the last election, is fear. Every ad was yeah, if you, do, if you vote for this person, your life will be ruined tomorrow. Um, it works. And people go, well, I better not vote for this person because I don't want my life to be ruined tomorrow. Um, we're afraid that we'll be left out of whatever Christ is doing. We might not be included in his salvation. We're afraid um, perhaps of the pain and the consequences that might come. Uh, and even for those who deny it, we're afraid But perhaps we're afraid because we don't want to interrupt what's happening in our life right now. So we suppress the idea that the world might end and that Christ might return today and wrap things up because we've got good plans, right? But likely, whether we're conscious of it or not, there's probably fear happening somewhere there. Alarmism or apathy to try and cover over the fear. Which one are you? Which one do you tend towards more, even if you don't fit fully on either end of the spectrum, which I hope you don't? Well, how are we meant to think then about the end of the world and when Christ will come? How are we meant to live between the now and the not yet? Uh, Not yet. Christ hasn't come back today. So what are we meant to do in the intervening period? Well, Jesus wants better for us than either end of the spectrum. And so these two chapters, although they look confusing and strange and avoidable, um, at least from my end because they're just too confusing, um, we're actually going to find that it's really very helpful. And it's Jesus' pastoral counsel to his disciples and by implication to us to how to navigate the times between the now and the not yet, between the first and second comings of Christ so that we would not be deceived, so that we would not be tricked, and so that we would not be unprepared. And so if one main message would come across all of these next four sermons, it would be this. Be alert, but not alarmed. Be alert, but not alarmed. And today we're going to look at just verses 1 through 35. It's a tricky section as I said before, that has much debate. I'm not going to pretend as if I've got this 100% watertight. There's things that I'm still wrestling with in this passage. Um, I'd say I'm maybe 80% convinced of what I'm about to put towards you today, just because it is hard. Uh, And so there's a lot of room for disagreement on this. Very faithful, smart Christians all disagree on this. And so just give me grace if you don't agree. Let's, let's Let's take the text apart. Let's debate it. I've got heaps more I could say than I am going to say. I've tried to mercifully summarize it for us today. But I do believe that Jesus will have strong application for us, which we will get to at the end, and once we've figured out what the heck is going on in the passage. So three simple points that will lead us to those application points that will help us live between the now and the not yet. Uh, ready for these points, ready? They're really creative. Overview, <laughs> explanation, application. Okay, overview, explanation, application. So I want to give us a very quick flyover of Matthew 24 in our overview so that if you start reading this at home, um, you can get bit more of a clue as to where we're going. This is our helicopter. We're getting up above the mountain ranges and we're going to fly through and kind of see where we're at. Because if you're just in the Blue Mountains trying to figure out what the Blue Mountains is like and you're at ground level, you're not going to really be able to get a picture. You're going to think things are, you know, so messy. But if you get up in a helicopter in the Blue Mountains, which I'm not even sure, can you do that? Has anyone ever done that? You can. That would be cool. Uh, maybe next life group trip, uh, very expensive, uh, but go through the Blue Mountains, you'll see all the different facets. That's what we're going to do now. So let's get some context. Remember, 
If you haven't been with us, since chapter 21, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is his final week of life. On a donkey, fulfilling these messianic prophecies that he will come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. The people praised him. They were shouting his name. They were loving on him. He came into the temple, caused a real ruckus by cleaning it out. The religious leaders weren't happy. Uh, they had question and answer time with Jesus where they tried to prove him wrong, flipped it back on them, proved them wrong. Uh, and then in chapter 23, it's a really serious chapter where Jesus pronounces a warning to his people and a woe on the religious leaders, saying, You're the people that are teaching you, the pastors of your age, people like me standing behind pulpits, watch out. They're actually religious hypocrites because their major problem was they wouldn't submit to Christ. They wouldn't submit to Jesus. doesn't matter how well they know the law. If they didn't teach Christ as the King, the Messiah, then they were leading people astray. And so Jesus says, watch out for these guys because they're not leading you to me. Then, verse 37, he, he sort of ends with this lament. He's not angry like, oh, I'm just so ticked off. He's, whoa, lament. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And then he pronounces upon Jerusalem that you will be made desolate. It's all over. And the next time you see me, you'll say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 1 and 2. This is another one of those moments where you just think, oh, the disciples are just hilarious. They're just like us. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So he's just pronounced a woe on the whole religious establishment, the temple itself, the house is going to be made desolate. And then the disciples are like, Jesus, have you seen the buildings? They're amazing. <laughs> they're having a real tourist moment. They're getting selfies. They're getting their filters going. They're like, this is amazing. Look, and if you look up pictures, I forgot to put one up, but if you look up pictures of the Herod's temple, it is incredible. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. They still don't even understand how they built it. Because some of the stones are as large as cars. How do you move that without mechanical instruments? You know? So incredible structure. The size of football field is the base. And then you've got all these temple buildings on top. But Jesus says very soberly and very surprisingly in verse 2. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly. So Solomon saying, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So they're basking in the glory of the temple and Jesus is predicting its absolute destruction and desolation. You've got to remember, this is Jesus, the Son of God, talking about the temple, the presence of God, the house of God, where God has blessed and dwelt. The unique place where you can be close to God is the temple. And Jesus is saying that very building, it will be torn down. It's going. It's going. It's about AD 30 when Jesus says that. If you know your history, in AD 70, that's exactly what happened. It'd be imagine, trying to imagine a... You've got to think of how important the temple is. Trying to imagine Sydney without the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House. Oh, that's not Sydney, that's just a bay. <laughs> Paris without the Eiffel Tower. Uh, New York without the Statue of Liberty. These icons, but it's more than that, isn't it? So this, is, this isn't just a rant of Jesus. This is Jesus predicting the overthrow of the entire Old Testament covenantal sacrificial system. It's over. So then they leave Jerusalem, verse 3. They walk down the valley of Kidron, come up the hill onto the Mount of Olives where, you know, the rest of the, a lot of the setting is for the rest of the gospel. And the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So now they've got these questions. Like, um, and I want you to just have a look at that verse and... And see, it's a private lesson. They're looking at the temple. They can see it all. And just look there. How many questions did they ask Jesus? Let's have a look. Verse 3. 
Although it looks like there's three questions, there's two questions. These two questions form the structure of the rest of Matthew 24 and 25, which is why I'm highlighting them. Verse 3, tell us when will these things be? So when will these things be? That is, when will be the destruction of Jerusalem? And what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? So that's one question tied together. When and what? I even made a slideshow for you to keep it all together. So you've got question one, when will these things be? Question two, what will be the sign? So when will these things be equals when's the destruction of Jerusalem? Question two is when will be your second coming, the return of Christ and the judgment? So there's the two questions. And the best way, I think, though this is much debated, uh, there should be another little box coming up there, um, the best way to think about all of chapter 24 is to see, very simply, that Jesus answers the first question first and the second question second in this order. So question one, when will these things be? Everything we just read in verse 4 to 35 is talking about answering that question. Verses 4 to 35 is all about when will these things be. The second question, what will be the sign of your coming into the end of the age? That's 36 to 51 of chapter 24. And then chapter 25 is all parables relating to that as well. Okay, so just take that in. Now, that might contradict everything you've been taught about this chapter beforehand, and that's okay. I'm going to show you how I got there, and then we'll apply it at the end. But hopefully, as you'll see, you'll see, oh, that actually does make... Quite a good amount of sense. Now, I didn't come up with this. Uh, I'll blame it on my friend, Josh Pinnell. He pointed me in this direction. And a great Bible commentator, R.T. France. And I think, that, I think they capture it really well. And you see how it works together. So that's the overview. How do we live between the now and the not yet? Well, it's a little bit underwhelming. But verses 4 to 35 aren't about the second coming of Christ. They're about the fall of Jerusalem. So you might think, well, then why bother preaching on it? Well, we'll get there. We'll get to the application later. But let's, let's go into now the explanation of, okay, how does that work? How does this play out? Someone give me a time check. I forgot to bring 11. Okay, lock the door. <laughs> no, no, we'll go quick. We'll go quick. Um, okay, so explanation. What question are we answering? Question one or question two? Question one, okay, what's the question? When will these things take place? That is, when will be the fall of Jerusalem? Because remember, these things, what are these things? The context, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Your house will be made desolate. Not one stone will be on another. When will these things take place? Ah, when will the fall of Jerusalem be? And that's four through 35. And the easiest way to split up this passage is into four subsections. I've got more slides today because this is more like teacher time because um, it is confusing. So the first little section, the first little answer Jesus gives is, get ready for this, it's not yet, <laughs> hold tight. Okay, so it's not yet, hold tight. When will these things take place? Well, not yet. Um, so let's look at verses 4 through 12. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they would lead many astray. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Not the end of the world, the end of these things that are about to take place, which is the destruction of Jerusalem. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. If you look at world history between 30 AD and 70 AD, actually you can find evidence of all of things happening. And these are just birth pains, right? Uh, not that birth pains are light. Any woman that's had a baby in this room knows, okay, birth pains, oh, this is going to be bad, okay? Contractions. The end isn't here yet. The baby's not here, but we've got pain to prepare us. Then verse 9, another birth pain. They will deliver you up to tribulation, put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will, be, will grow cold. If you read through the New Testament, you see evidence of all of this. False prophets, 
the, the church in Ephesus, your love has grown cold. Uh, you see put to death Stephen stoned. You see um, you know, all the, the, the rage from the nations, the, the people throwing them into jail. Betrayal. The Apostle Paul betrayed by so many. Uh, so all of this takes place in the, New, in the New Testament age, when the New Testament's being written before 70 AD. And Jesus is saying, it's going to be chaotic. It's going to be deceptive. It's going to be misleading. And you see all these things. It's not yet. The fall of Jerusalem isn't going to come yet. So hold tight. Now he does put in verses 13 to 14 two rays of hope. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And it's going to be really hard, but if you endure, if you put your faith in me, you will be saved. And the gospel will still go out. It will go out to all the earth. Now, this looks like he's talking about um, the, what we're, at the age that we live in. But actually, if you take that phrase, all the world, um, and you put it through the whole New Testament, there's many times in the New Testament when they use the phrase the whole world and they don't mean indigenous people in Australia included in that. Um, what they mean is the whole known world, the Roman Empire. And in Colossians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, you know, the hope laid up for you in heaven, uh, the truth of the gospel which has come to you as indeed the whole world. Now, had every single nation, group, language, tribe heard the gospel when Paul had written that? No. So Jesus isn't saying it has to go to everyone, then the end will come. He's not talking about that. He's talking about the gospel going throughout the Roman Empire, which had happened, which did happen before 70 AD. So there's hope. If you endure, you'll be saved, and the gospel will not be thwarted. It's an unstoppable gospel. Then we get to the next point, verses 15 to 28. It's about to happen. Run. That's the summary. It's about to happen, run. Which kind of goes against the be alert but not alarmed. But if you know there's going to be a fire, you don't need to be alarmed when it happens, right? He's like, okay, there's the fire that you told me about. So we're still sticking with that. It's about to happen, run. Verse 15, really confusing. We're not going to go into all the details on it. But when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand... Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house, etc., etc. Jesus is saying, there's going to be something you see. When you see it, it's going to remind you of what Daniel prophesied about the abomination of desolation. When you see something that reminds you of that, which actually was fulfilled in 186 BC and Epiphanes Antiochus the fourth, get that wrong every time I say it. Matt can correct me. He knows all about it. When you see something like that, that's the time. It's time to run. That's when the fall of Jerusalem is happening. So get ready. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. Okay, now go. Run. Run. Don't stay. Don't stay. Uh, there's no need to defend Jerusalem. There's no need to defend the temple. This is God's judgment. This is God's plan. You can imagine, you know, any self-respecting Jewish man like the Ukrainians. Everyone flies home to Ukraine to protect their borderland from the Russian invasion. Any self-respecting Jewish man would have stayed to fight the Romans who came in in AD 70. But Jesus is saying, not for you. The old is gone. There's a new temple coming. Don't stay and fight. Flee. And if you hear about it and you're in the surrounding area, don't come in. Run the other direction. He's giving permission for flight. Why? Well, verse 21, there'll be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Which again, if you take that phrase, Jesus isn't saying categorically this is the worst thing that's ever happened in the world. It's a hyperbolic statement uh, to express how bad it will be. It's not going to be light. You're going to know what's happening, right? The temple being destroyed, that's pretty bad. That's the entire structure of the, the faith is gone. Um, a reminder of the judgment in 586 BC when Babylon came in and burned the temple, if you know your Bible history, okay? So Jesus is saying it's going to be really bad. Really, really, really bad. Verse 23, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, there he is, do not believe it. So if anyone comes with false hope saying, Jesus is coming back, he's going to save Israel, he's going to protect us. Look, he's there, he's there, he's coming, he's here. Don't believe it. 
He's saying categorically, I will not return at this point. I'm not coming back now. You will. And then to make that very clear, verse 27, this is how you'll know when I've returned. You know, when you look up in the sky and you see lightning (laughs) and it's from the east. Where are we? East to the west. Is that right? So I'm looking at Murray. That shows that I really trust Murray to be like a man of geography. (laughs) Which one? East, west? Let it be noted. Scrub it from the Facebook. Okay. You look up and you see the lightning in the sky. It's obvious. You can't miss it. Everyone stops. There's lightning. All the kids go, and if you're not living in safe houses like us, but you're in peasant life, Lightning, that's pretty frightening. Jesus is saying, that's when you'll, you'll know because it's going to be as obvious as lightning in a dark sky. You won't be like, oh, I missed the return of Christ. He, he returned in South Korea 25 years ago. I, I missed it. Oh, no. Um, or in America. I mean, how did I miss that he was just in Texas the whole time? <laughs> you, you'll know. You'll know. Uh, and sadly, this came to pass. Uh, Josephus, who's a non-Christian Jewish historian, he said this of the destruction of Jerusalem, and it was terrible. You read the history, it's harrowing. The noise also of those that were fighting was incessant, both by day and by night. But the lamentation of those that mourned exceeded the other. There's loud fighting, even louder is the crying. They, that is the Romans who came in, moreover, were still inventing somewhat or other. And when they'd resolved upon anything, they executed it without mercy and omitted no method of torment or of barbarity. Uh, It's predicted that 1.1 million Jews were killed in this siege of Jerusalem. Um, There's a, a long run from 66 AD to 70 AD where the Romans started taking over. There was revolts. Then there was a civil war. It paused for a time. Then there was a Jewish problem within the city, and then the Romans came in. They came into the temple. They set up their flags. They worshipped to the false gods on the altar of God in the temple, burned the whole thing down. Um, Because there was so much gold in the temple, they took the stones and they levered them off and tore down everything to get to the gold that had melted from when they burnt it down. It was utter destruction. Uh, And there's recording of just, you couldn't find anything. You would think if you went into Jerusalem after this that it had never been inhabited. Great tribulation. And Jesus is saying, I'm not coming back at that time. So you should run. So that's the second step. It's about to happen when you see this sign, run. And by the way, probably the abomination of desolation is maybe, maybe, I don't know, okay, is, is the Romans coming in, I think, um, but we'll see. Jesus will tell us in heaven. Third step, verses 29 to 31, it's here. Now, this is the most confusing part, and this is where all the debate comes. Because if you just read it, it sounds like the second coming of Christ, right? Like you're like, I've always believed that this is the return of Christ, this section. That's, that's my perspective. And if, you, if you're new to the faith and you've come to church for the first time this week, I'm sorry. Uh, but this is an in-house debate and you can just go, these guys are crazy. Um, I hope there's more to Christianity than this. <laughs> and you'll get there by the end. Um, stay for coffee and chat about Jesus. But we, we've got to deal with these hard texts. So, so let's, let's not read it. It's there. I'll explain to you what I think in a moment, and we'll read it when I explain to it to save time. There's three ways you can interpret this section. Okay, so he's talking about... Oh, I'll just read it. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, so what's he saying here? Well, here's the three views in summary. Jesus is predicting that at the fall of Jerusalem, he will return. 
that didn't happen, Jesus got it wrong. Some people believe that. Some people go, ah, oh, Jesus, Jesus made a mistake. He thought he was swept up. He thought it, and it didn't happen. Some Bible scholars believe that. Um, it's a big problem because that meant Jesus is wrong, and therefore we shouldn't really believe in him and follow him. Um, he might be a nice philosopher, moral teacher, but he's, he's a false prophet. So I don't think that's it. <laughs> um, um, point number two, or view number two, is that in verse 29, Jesus completely changes the subject. We're not talking about the fall of Jerusalem anymore. We're talking about the end of the world and his second coming. Now, there's lots of different ways that people get there, but in general, there's a shift. Not Jerusalem anymore. But the problem with that is, is in verse 32 to 35, you'd remember from the reading, that Jesus says, all these things will take place in this generation. And they say, well, then he goes back to talking about Jerusalem there. So you've got verses 4 to 28, Jerusalem, second coming, and then 32 to 35, back to Jerusalem. It's sort of, it's hard to get there, but it's possible. Um, I used to think that. I was like, well, that's the only way to make sense of it because it's talking about the end of the world. But there's a third view. And this is my view. Jesus is still talking here about the destruction of Jerusalem, but he's talking about it in a symbolic way, and he's not talking about his second coming. And I'll explain how I got there, because I know what you're thinking. <laughs> what? <laughs> how is that possible? R.T. France, in his commentary, says, I shall argue in the commentary below that this natural understanding of the terms, the, that Jesus changes topic, is in fact natural only to those who've been conditioned to it by a long tradition of Christian exegesis i.e. we only think that he's talking about his second coming because people before us have told us that that's what it meant. But that in the context of first century Jewish thought, it's far from obvious. And his argument is that the natural reading of this for a first century Jewish person would be to think he's talking about the one thing. How do we get there? Immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 29. So he's immediately after, not like, two millennia after, three millennia, but immediately, the very next thing to happen. It seems like he's saying, after those days, the fall of Jerusalem, that tribulation, after those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light. If you know your history, that didn't happen during the fall of Jerusalem. There wasn't meteorological events of destruction. So, What's Jesus doing here? Well, if you've done your Bible in a year plan, ever... You spend quite a lot of time in the prophets. You read through the prophets, you'd be confused. 90% of your Bible reading plan through that time, think, what is going on? But you will notice in the prophets that there's lots of talk like this. This is prophetic language. Uh, that what Jesus is saying here is actually not literally the sky will be darkened, the stars will fall, but they're representations of political and spiritual powers. He's actually quoting from Isaiah, and there's a, there's a little graph that I can put up. Is that one included? No, I didn't give it to you. Okay, you miss out on that one. But there's, um, there's a little comparative of the exact words that Jesus uses here, cross-reference with Jesus talking about the sun and moon and the stars being destroyed, which means Edom, which means Egypt, which means Israel being destroyed. So all these same language used to describe how earthly nations were destroyed. And Jesus is using the same language, but now talking about Israel. You will be destroyed. The, your leaders will be taken down. So if Jesus, if the, if the prophets can use the same language to talk about an earthly nation being destroyed, why can't Jesus use the same symbolic language to talk about Jerusalem being destroyed? Verse 30 and 31 then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Okay, that looks like we're going to see in heaven like something. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. and They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's the second coming, right? No. No. Actually, what he's doing there, he's quoting Daniel chapter 7. If you look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 to 14... It's actually not a picture of Jesus or the Son of Man descending from heaven. 
It's the exact opposite. It's an enthronement. It's an ascending into heaven. Look at it. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Ancient Hebrew cosmology, where's God? Is he on earth or is he in heaven? He's in heaven, right? So if he comes to the Ancient Days, he's going up. And was presented before him. Imagine a throne. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. It's the, it's the coronation of this Son of Man. It's his enthronement, not his second coming. And so Jesus is saying, and I don't really, this is where it doesn't really make sense to me, but in the fall of Jerusalem is a symbolic picture of Jesus actually finally being enthroned as the king of the world. It's like the final step in his whole, you know, his death, he went down, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. 40 years later, the fall of Jerusalem, the old order is done. It's a final sign we're in the new covenant age. It's no longer you can't worship in the temple. You can't make a sacrifice anymore. You can't get to God through the old system. You have to come to Christ and Christ alone. And it's not just Jewish. Now, all the people, all the nations, all the tongues, all the tribes, they can access Christ because they don't have to go to Jerusalem. They can go straight to him. And he reigns on his throne forever and ever. And that's why verse 31 says, He'll send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from the one end of heaven to the other. That's the worldwide proclamation of the gospel that will take place even more after AD 70. And look where we are now with hundreds of millions, if not billions of born-again believers in every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. So that's what Jesus is saying. When the temple falls, it will be a sign that I was right, that the old is gone, the new has come, the old temple is gone, the new temple is here, the church, which I dwell in, in my people, right here, we are fulfillment of that right now. And it'll be a sign. And that's, that's what he's talking about. He's not talking about his second coming. And then Michael Green, helpfully in his commentary, says, Nobody can prove that this is the right interpretation of these difficult verses. But it is more than possible. Uh, it yields good sense. Does not make Jesus guilty of either self-contradiction or false prophecy. And it would make excellent sense of verse 34. All right, so I can't prove it, but I think, I think that's what the text is saying. The absolute destruction of Israel is a sign of Jesus' absolute dominion over the world. Final piece of the puzzle, verse 32 to 35. Jesus summarizes, so be alert, but not alarmed. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. In Jerusalem, the fig tree was one of the only trees that would shed its leaf in the winter, deciduous tree. And when it warmed up, the sap would run, and then the fruit, the flower would start to, the leaf would come out, and then the fruit, and then, you know, it's summer. And so they would wait. And when you saw those first leaves on the fig tree, oh, yes, it's summer. Except Jesus is saying, when you see these signs... Oh no, the fall of Jerusalem is about to happen. Run. Um, he's, he's using this symbolic picture to say, not yes, the kingdom is coming, as in Christ is returning, but actually the destruction is here. In verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. Generation, biblically, 40 years, thereabouts, 40 years from about the time that Jesus said this to when Jerusalem fall, fell. The very disciples who heard this were actually the ones that needed to hear all these verses, right? To guide them through this time. And so I think it gives good sense of the text. And then in 70 AD, Josephus tells this. Caesar gave the orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. It was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came thither believe it had ever been inhabited. There's great tribulation, terrible desolation. So that's the explanation of verses 4 to 35. You've got those four scenes. It's not yet. Hold tight. 
It's about to happen. Leg it. <laughs> Run. It's here. Understand, when it's here, this is what it means. It actually doesn't mean everything's over. It means I am the king. I told you it would happen. In verse 4, or part 4, be alert but not alarmed. What's the time? We need the application. Point three, application. I'll be brief. So what does it mean for us now? Okay, <laughs> temple's gone. There's a mosque there now. There's a wall, the base foundation. So we don't need these verses in the strict, direct application sense. But I think that there's three things that we need from this passage today. And I'll give them briefly. Be alert church, but not alarmed, so that you are not tricked into following false messiahs or false predictions of Jesus' return. Over the past two millennia, many men have risen up and said, I am he, I am the Christ, I am the new leader, or acted as if they were the Christ. I got called the other day by a South Korean cult called, I don't know how to say it, I'm not going to, Shion Jin Chi or something. Um, and 200,000 followers. He believes that he alone has the interpretation to the Bible, that to be saved, you have to actually come to him because he alone has the way of salvation. This isn't a vain thing. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world are deceived into following false messiahs or to following false predictions of when Christ will return. The Jim Jones massacre, people killed themselves. People sell all they have. People give away their credit cards. People disown their family members because they're deceived. And Jesus is saying, do not be deceived. The way you will know that I'm returning is you will see it in the heavens and you can't mistake it. So don't be deceived. In verse 36, as we'll see next week, he says, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. So anyone who says, I know, you say, you're a false prophet. You either repent or be charged with being a false prophet, and that's going to be bad. Okay. It's really bad. So I ran out of steam on that one. <laughs> so. Point two. Be alert but not alarmed, and expect suffering and trials in this life. He's speaking to the 12 apostles, or the 11 they knew Jesus face to face. They wrote scripture. They were the first ones to receive the Holy Spirit in the church age of Pentecost. They rose people from the dead. They healed people who couldn't walk. They had incredible power and gifting. Yet, Jesus said to them, you'll suffer terribly. Being close to Christ, being a Christian, being converted, being powerful in the Spirit is no protection from the tribulation of this age. There will be tribulation, even for the closest followers of Christ. So don't be, alert, don't be alarmed. Don't be shocked. Yes, it will be hard, but Jesus has prepared you. And if you are in a prolonged season of trial if you are in a prolonged season of trial know know that the one who saves you has not departed from you in this time he predicted this terrible tribulation for his beloved people warned them of it but didn't spare them from it and so your tribulation your pain your discomfort your trouble that you experience now is not a sign of his displeasure. It's not a sign of his absence. But in his sovereign plan, in his goodwill, he planned even for the destruction and terrible tribulation of Jerusalem, and he will plan the days and ordering of your life, and he loves you through it all and guides you through it. So don't run from him. Be alert, but not alarmed, so that you don't follow false messiahs or false solutions or false hopes or prosperity gospels that promise you or that tell you that the reason you're suffering, you don't have enough faith. You're not close enough to Christ. You can't get much closer than the apostle Peter, <laughs> than the apostle John. You think you're closer than him? No. 
So be alert, but not alarmed, and expect suffering and trials. You won't be saved from them, but he'll be with you in them. He prepares you for them. And finally, be alert, but not alarmed, and trust only in King Jesus. Be alert and not alarmed so that you trust only in King Jesus. The absolute destruction of Jerusalem was a sign of his absolute dominion over the earth. The worst of times was a a picture of the best of times to come. And Jesus is commanding to his followers, trust in me and me alone. Cling to me and me alone. Don't follow anyone else anywhere else. Don't go anywhere. Follow my words because heaven and earth will pass away. My words will not pass away. So friends, the final thing I'll leave you with is cling to Christ. Whatever tribulation, whatever trouble, whatever calamity befalls you, whatever prosperity you think you're coasting through, trust in Christ between the now and the not yet. Come to him. He's the only safe haven because he saves us not into prosperity, not into wellness, not into health, not into safety and security, temporally, physically, but of our soul. (laughs) And he saves the one thing that will last forever into the new age so that when he returns on the clouds of heaven and you put your trust in him, you will be safe on that day, the only day that it truly matters to be safe and secure. So don't fear. Don't fall into following these hysteria around the end of the world. Don't fear and suppress it and not be thinking and not be alert. Be alert, but not alarmed. Cling to Christ because his words will never fail you. Let's pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use these words to strengthen us, that we would not be deceived that we would not be misled, that we would be strengthened to endure to the end and be saved. Oh, Lord, protect us and use us as gospel ministers to go out into this troubled world, warn people of your coming and give them hope that their souls can be safe. Liberate them through, from fear into faith in you, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.